0: Welcome to Recovery Coast to Coast, broadcasting from Seattle, Washington, carried live on 850-KHHO in Tacoma, Washington, and carried nationally in streaming audio at www.recoverycoasttocoast.org. Two hours of interviews and features, plus questions and comments about this one day at a time adventure in personal recovery, as we share experience, strength, and hope with others so that they may recover from alcohol and other drug and behavioral addictions. And now, Recovery Coast to Coast is on the air. Here's your host, Neil Scott.
1: We welcome you back once again to Recovery Coast to Coast, the only program in the country on the air five nights a week, two hours a night. Talking about addiction with a focus on recovery, we are delighted to have you with us. We are on the road once again. We are in Denver, Colorado, at a great conference. It is sponsored by NATAP, which is the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. They've been doing this for about 40 years now, doing it with a great deal of success. Our broadcast is presented by M Ranch in Yakima, Washington, where recovery becomes reality. They've treated over 200,000 individuals, adolescents, and family members for the past 50 years. A lot of people doing good treatment, here talking about it in Denver Colorado and one of them is Elizabeth Fikes she's with a new program frankly I was not familiar with fairly new program so we're going to find out more about that together the program has a great name Stonewater Stonewater Adolescent Recovery Center it is in Oxford Mississippi Elizabeth welcome to recovery coast to coast
2: thank you so much tell us tell us
1: about this program for adolescents in, in Mississippi
2: well, 14 years ago, I have to start there, um, actually yesterday was the anniversary. Uh, we found out my 16-year-old brother was using drugs, was very addicted to drugs, needed treatment. And we had a really hard time finding adolescent treatment. And um, since that time, 14 years ago, um, we've stayed really engaged in trying to help other families who had adolescents who needed treatment. And. Um, we have a success story. My brother yesterday celebrated 14 years clean. Nice. nice. <laughs> I have to mention that part. Sometimes that was I forget be my to tell the question. happy ending. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, how is he doing? <laughs> right. He's doing awesome, and is the CEO of Stonewater. And um, we just, as a family, we're really passionate about providing other resources um, at a really high level of care that incorporated family into treatment mm. and could lead. Kids to lifelong recovery.
1: Tell me a little bit about his journey.
2: His journey was that he went to, well, you know, it started with my parents having to have him arrested in our home mm-hmm. because he was not willing to go to treatment. Uh, and then he went to a 90-day intensive treatment program followed by a, an 11-month therapeutic boarding school. And so that model of a really intensive treatment program followed by then aftercare long-term was successful for us and for our family and for him.
1: How old was he at the time? He was 16. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Where did he go to treatment?
2: He went to two places in Texas, one called Azleway and the other one called Heartlight. Mm.
1: And it finally caught on. And once he got into long-term recovery, Mm -hmm. he felt he needed to give back. That's right. What was the journey like in putting together the Stonewater program?
2: Well, I can tell you, we certainly didn't ever think that we'd be sitting on this side of it. None of our family is clinical, we are just really passionate, and we all bring...
1: It begins with passion. That's right.
2: Um, We just wanted to help other families um, have, in some ways, um, an equally good experience, in some ways, a better experience um, than than what we had, and and we really saw the need for family being involved in that treatment, because you can't have a child go back to the exact same environment that he left and expect him to be successful, especially when it's an adolescent.
1: The only thing you need to change is everything.
2: That's right, exactly. <laughs>
1: is, is, is everything. Tell me about the, uh, about the treatment program. How big is it? How many beds? Mm-hmm. What's the length of stay?
2: Uh, it's intimate. We are 10 beds. Uh, it's a 90-day program. On, it's a beautiful property, very home-like feeling, very intimate. You get a lot of really customized, individualized care, um, a lot of one-on-one. We really care about each patient and their families and getting them involved in that process.
1: Elizabeth Fikes joining us for a few moments on Recovery Coast to Coast. She's the director of outreach and communications for an exciting new program called Stonewater. It is uh, down in Oxford, Mississippi. Most of the people that you treat, most of the youngsters, are they from that area?
2: No, they actually aren't. We treat a fair amount from Mississippi, but we're getting kids from all over the nation. Mm. You know, having adolescent good, adolescent treatment is um, a nationwide issue, not just, uh, you know, Mm. something that we were lacking in Mississippi.
1: What do you do for families?
2: We do extensive family um, involvement with them in the program. We have a family therapist who works with them once a week. We also have two family days a month where the families are welcome to come to Stonewater. Before they spend time with their child, they do education and group processing as well with other parents, which is a really nice time for them to just connect with other parents who are going through the same things that they're going through. They also connect with my parents who are Mm -hmm. serving sort of an ambassadorial role Wow. Um, and being there and saying, look, we've been where you are, yeah, we yeah. understand it, and there's hope, and we, we're on the other side, and you can be there, too.
1: How exciting. The program is Stonewater Adolescent Recovery Center in Oxford, Mississippi. Elizabeth Fikes is the Director of Outreach and Communications. Uh, it, it really is a family program, mm-hmm. not not just the program for people going through, but for your family.
2: That's right. We're passionate about that What have
1: you learned, Elizabeth, in the last year?
2: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I don't learn one thing a day. I learn, like, 100 new things a day. Nice. So that's hard to narrow down. But, you know, I think what I've learned most of all is the importance of the connection and relation. You know, people call me. We have our family story on our website. People call and they don't necessarily mention all the amazing treatments that we have, Mm. which are great. But they mention our family story and how that Provokes them to call us.
1: What makes the program unique?
2: Well, certainly our passion, Mm -hmm. you know, our our authenticity as a program. We don't want to be, we're 90 days. We don't want to be a 90-day band-aid. So we're really working on building a strong foundation and equipping these adolescents with tools that they need to continue on after Stonewater.
1: So you don't treat and release.
2: That's right. That's right. We absolutely stay connected with um, the patient and their families after they leave us. And we want to be an ongoing resource. We're individualizing every treatment plan. Every child is different. Every family situation is different. And so we spend a lot of time making sure that their treatment plans are also different.
1: Elizabeth fikes us, Director of Outreach and Communications, a new program. It's been around a, a year, right? A little over a year. A little, yes. And mm-hmm. you know, the, the the work that goes into a startup of any kind, let alone a treatment center, <laughs> how did you find the
2: staff? We had very specific, um, a very specific idea of who we wanted on our team, and you know you have to find people when you're working with adolescents, and in this industry, you have to find people who are really sold out to that population, and so um, you know that was paramount is finding other people who really shared our passion mm-hmm. um, and we have an amazing team that was like i said none of us our family members are clinical so we put together just a really all-star team of um, clinicians um, you know direct care staff uh, an awesome chef uh, dietitians who organize and you know create the meals um, we're really incorporating health and wellness into that um, that model as well
1: what about the dietary part of it
2: yeah it's a huge uh it's important and it's also really cool because the dietary piece is one of those things that people tend to minimize but it's one of the pieces that the guys start to see a difference in the mirror so uh. you, you're no longer telling them they should do this they yeah. start to see that um, you know maybe they're gaining weight and they wanted to or they're losing weight or their skin's clearing up and And they start to see the role. They see the change. Mm
1: -hmm. They see the change. That's right,
2: and that's more impactful.
1: Elizabeth Fikes uh, joining us, director of outreach and communication. The program is a 10-bed, intimate, very intimate program. Length of stay is 90 days. Is it boys and
2: girls? It's boys only. Boys only. Boys only. We do we do treat uh, females also in our outpatient program. So we offer a complete continuum of care. We start with uh, detox, withdrawal management services, and then do residential, all the way to outpatient. But Mm -hmm. our outpatient services um, are the only services that we offer for females also.
1: Gender-specific treatment makes a big difference. That's right. Makes a big, big difference. Big difference. We're here at the 40th Annual Conference. Is this your first time here? It's my first
2: time here, yes. would you (laughs) think? I love it. It's so informative. You talk about um, what have you learned. I mean, it's so neat to sit in these sessions and hear from the people who've been in the industry for so long and are also not just focused on their experience, but being innovative and ensuring that how we're looking to the future.
1: Are you folks members of NAATP?
2: We are not yet. You I will be soon, yeah, I'll will bet. will be soon, yeah. that's right. Yeah,
1: that's the one big piece of advice I have to give to you is okay. join this wonderful, wonderful organization. all
2: right well listen, I'm blown away by um, all that I've learned here and the people that I've met so far.
1: Elizabeth Fikes, uh, nice enough to stop by the broadcast location for a few moments to talk about the new program called Stonewater. It's been around for about a year now, down in oxford mississippi if you want to find out more about stonewater they have a marvelous website stonewaterrecovery.com and uh, elizabeth's family story is on the website stonewaterrecovery.com
2: yep that's
1: it thank you so much for joining us thank
2: you so much i really appreciate it i'm
1: Neil great Schott, to be the here. program recovery coast to coast we're going to take a short time out back with more right after this
3: These days, we talk about everything. I've been sober now one year, three days, and counting. My sister was restructured at work after 10 years. Welcome to the new normal and the cards for the new normal. New Journeys cards from Hallmark.
2: My girlfriend sent me a card that said, I'm really something to celebrate.
3: Encouragement cards for all the stuff we face today. I actually found a card that says, sorry you lost your job. Journeys, new cards with real words for real life. Only at today's Hallmark Gold Crown stores.
0: She has always been your baby. But when your daughter got into drugs
4: and alcohol, she turned into a stranger. What do you do? Where do you turn? Contact Sundown M. Ranch. Sundown's nationally recognized youth treatment program guides young people back to a life free of drugs and alcohol. All treatment is gender specific and directed by caring certified professionals in a safe environment. You can get your daughter back and get to know her again. Go to www.sundown.org to
1: learn more. Welcome back to Recovery Coast to Coast. I'm Neil Scott. We are at the 20th anniversary conference of NAATP, the National Association of Treatment Providers. We're at the beautiful Omni Resort in Denver, Colorado. And the jam-packed program featured many special presentations, starting off at the annual awards banquet to open the conference. Now, each year, NAATP presents four very prestigious awards. And we'd like to share this year's award winners with you. The Master of Ceremonies for the awards was Paul Bacharach, who for the past five years has been the President and CEO of Gateway Rehab in Pennsylvania. Paul chairs the NAATP Awards and Recognition Committee. Here is Mr. Paul Bacharach. Uh,
5: it, it really is my honor to serve as the Master of Ceremonies for the NAATP Addiction Leadership Awards. A tough act to follow after last year, with a stellar performance by Ray Tomasi. I had to consider whether to wear that tuxedo or not, but I knew I wasn't carried off with the same suave sophistication of Ray. But tonight we do uh, recognize four individuals with a focus in the area uh, in the areas of quality improvement, volunteer leadership, journalism, and the National Association Career Achievement Award. The selections were made by a nominating committee that received the nominations and reviewed them. Uh, that committee included myself, Dave Rotenberg from Karen, Gary Fisher from Cirque Lodge, and our executive director, Marvin Ventrell. Our first award is the Nelson J. Bradley Career Achievement Award, and it goes to someone that most people in the field know he's been around for a long, long time. Started his career as a new college grad with a social work degree in 1971 and progressed over the next 11 years to become president and chief executive officer of Rosecrans Health Network. When he joined Rosecrans, they had the capacity to serve 24 kids at a staff of 14 an annual budget of $300,000. In 2018, the 100th anniversary of Rosecrans, they have a budget in excess of $70 million, over 800 employees, and serve individuals in 40 different locations across three different states. Most recently, Rosecrans continued its expansion with the addition of Prairie Center, a 49-year-old substance abuse treatment agency in Champaign-Urbana. Phil has served as the chair of the board of the National Association and remains an active member of the board. He's also been involved in the Illinois Alcoholism and Drug Dependency Association, and he's received numerous community awards as well as recognition from his alma maters. But most importantly, Anyone who knows Phil knows about his extensive knowledge of the field and commitment to leading a sustainable organization based on structure and accountability, sound business strategy, and operating practices. He's been a visionary leader who has built an integrated health organization adaptable to the constant changes and challenges of our industry, and in recognition of Phil's 47 years of serving the needs of his community, addiction treatment providers, and in particular, patients struggling to achieve recovery from addiction, it's my honor to present the National Association Nelson J. Bradley Career Achievement Award to Phil Eaton. Phil. You know, they have a
6: teleprompter here and my picture's on it and I gotta look at that. You know, this is really cool. This is really cool. Thank you to the Conference Selection Committee, Award Committee, the NAATP Board of Directors for this prestigious award. Marvin, thank you. It's very humbling, and I'm very grateful for this recognition. At our NAATP board meeting yesterday, Ed Deal came up and congratulated me. And he said, you know, Phil, it's kind of nice that they do this before you're dead. And I say, oh, I kind of think so too. <laughs> before I'm dead. Um, but tonight, I'd like to introduce my wife, Sherry, my uh, Sherry, Come on. and my partner, my best friend. Uh, 48 years, we'll be married in July, and my son, Chris is here tonight also. These yes, these 47 years they have been a journey. But not unlike many of you, you know, we don't do these journeys alone and we could never claim we do. And I've some of my team that's here tonight. Dave Gomel is the president of Rosecrans Inc. That's our operating company. Janice Waddell, our Vice President of Senior Vice President of Marketing and Community Relations. Ann Baum is my executive assistant. You may have met her today. And also with us tonight um, is my good friend, mentor, colleague, Renee Popovitz. Renee, thank you for being here too. Each of you have had a significant role in this journey. And have helped shape it so, so greatly. Thank you. I must also recognize that Rosecrans Board of Directors. You know those of you that work for boards. Uh, you know what that means to have the support of committed, wise board members and donors that give of their treasure to support our mission and help propel it forward. And our staff, our staff that have that fire in the belly, that have that passion for recovery, that is so important, and that dedication. This recognition of me and my career is very kind, and I'm very appreciative, but the recognition and credit, you know, I must also share with NAATP. You know, I I joined this board in the late 80s. Um, and we're, with this little tiny adolescent treatment center that was more publicly funded than really the bylaws and the rules of NAATP said, uh, I could be on the board or even be a member. So I'd never told anybody that. <laughs> um, but back in the 80s, those were those were challenging times too, Marv. Um, and most of those companies and many of them are gone to different organizations. Most of the companies are gone and... Uh, Many of the folks are to different organizations. But, you know, it was NAATP that, you know, and I've said this many times. I told Marv this when he visited our agency. The National Association and its leadership and the fellowship of the members, and you guys get that, held the hand of our organization and were very, very instrumental in the direction that we went, and many of you today. Uh, we're, part, we're part of this journey that, that we have been involved in. You mentored me, you guided me, motivated me, corrected me, lifted me when I needed it, and buoyed me in this journey. One of my board members said, you know, Phil, it's really nice you're getting that award. And he's about my age, and he says, you know, we're, we're kind of getting a shorter runway and I, and I walked away, and, you know, I accepted his congratulations. And I, you know, I, I kind of view that runway thing differently. I think his view of it was kind of landing. I'm still thinking, take it off. And I know we believe that at, yeah, geez, at our company. And we are launching, and we are still growing. And we're still touching and saving lives and giving help and hope. We believe this is God's work we do, that you do, done for his people, by his people. It's always been his plan in my book, offering hope, changing and saving lives. That's, I believe, as Len said, that's why we're here. That's why we participate in this that we offer the miracle of recovery every day. We see it at our treatment centers. Thank you for listening.
1: If you are just joining us, I'm Neil Scott, host of Recovery Coast to Coast, and we are in Denver, Colorado at the Omni Resort, site of the 40th anniversary conference of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. We're presenting highlights of the annual awards banquet. Each year, the organization presents four very prestigious awards. The second of these is named after the first director of NAATP, Mike Ford, who I worked closely with in the early days of NAATP. Once again, here is the master of ceremonies. Paul Bacharach, who is president and CEO of Gateway Rehabilitation in Pennsylvania.
5: Our next award is the Michael Q. Ford Journalism Award, and it goes to Sam Quinones, author of Dreamland, the true tale of America's opioid, addiction, opioid epidemic. His book is really a three-pronged story of how heroin addiction became an epidemic in small-town America. Sam quit his job with the LA Times to create this riveting tale of capitalism run amok with the ultimate effect of stimulating a catastrophic opioid epidemic. Having read the book and we actually had Sam at one of our fundraising events to uh, go through his uh, his book and his findings, he's, he's really an enthralling speaker and presenter. And I can affirm that this story is really an overview of the greedy and reckless marketing of pharmaceutical, uh, pharmaceutical opiates, dovetailing with the group of Mexican entrepreneurs that uh, from a small state in Mexico that decided that this was a direction that they were going to take he traces these factors uh, at, through how they combined to be to affect an opioid addicted population in a small town portsmouth ohio through wh- or where the residents were priced out of the pill mills that existed there and turned to a new and cheap high from easily available heroin coming from this small Mexican state. They developed a service-oriented network that they expanded um, across America and the story really traces a true crime story of complex sociology with an expose of uncontrolled capitalism. The committee unanimously recommended Sam for the award unfortunately he could not be here this evening but we do have a brief Brief acceptance video so if we could roll his video
7: this is Sam Quinones Um, I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for choosing uh, my book dreamland for for this award Um, I'm very very honored and it's um, a grave disappointment that I could not be there uh, with you guys today Um, it's been a, a, a very hectic three years when I wrote dreamland I Told my wife that when this thing comes out, we have to get used to the idea that it's just going to fade immediately. It's just going to drop off the face <laughs> of the earth. Because at the time, um, I just was finding nobody who seemed to care about that about the topic. Um, certainly, uh, families, uh, the extended families, uh, wanted to keep it hushed and quiet, and all the fabricated obituaries and. If you remember, not so long ago, this was 2013 or 14. Really, there was not the awareness of this problem uh, uh, back then that that there that there is today in a very healthy way. And uh, and uh, and so I'm just honored and stunned when I when I, I get these kinds of things, and I really appreciate you all, um, well honoring uh, Dreamland in 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 that way. And I want to say a, a, a couple of things that. Um, uh, probably in the history of uh, drug treatment in America, we've never had a more willingness to uh, look at other forms of treating uh, drug addiction uh, besides just simply incarcerating people. Uh, I, there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, but I do think it's an important moment in the history of all this. Uh, I would say, I would encourage you to understand that, that you're so important. In, in, in the country and, and, and dealing with this this problem, I know how hard it can be. I know how hard you can work. I know how frustrating uh, it can be when you see people uh, relapse and 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 then die, and then, and 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 the numbers don't seem to ever go down. They always seem to rise, and even when they may go down, it's not by very much. And I just want you to uh, keep in mind how essential you are to the country uh, right now and to. Um, uh, regions and towns and, and counties uh, what you do is essential. Uh, the country I believe would be lost without you. I also want you to understand um, what I think is a, an important point of all this and that is um, that what you do may not be recognized uh, a, a lot because um, real change you know happens piecemeal little bit by little bit and piecemeal isn't sexy it doesn't make for great uh, for, for TV reports and so on, uh, um, but that does not mean that you're not important in all this, and that does not mean that what you do uh, is not essential, it certainly uh, uh, is. And I'm hoping that you will keep that in mind as the, the numbers may rise, or even when they go down, again, don't go down by, by so much that would give you encouragement, and, and, and I'm just hoping you won't lose heart, don't become hardened, don't become embittered, this is um, part of. This is a very complicated thing. I don't believe begin to understand it myself. I'm a layman. I'm not a, a, a psychologist or a, or a neuroscientist of any kind, and so um, I've just been overwhelmed by how hard this thing is to to crack. But that, uh, you know, working together, uh, we I think w- we will find solutions, many solutions to this. People always ask me what's a solution, Sam, and I say there is none. We tried the single solitary solution, right? We tried uh, one kind of pill for every human being's pain. We tried a jail cell for every addict, you know? And uh, it doesn't, doesn't work, look like it, where it got us. So I think it's time to begin to understand that we need to spend a lot more time thinking in terms of holistic solutions and approaches to this. Uh, and if you do that, I um, think your towns will thank you. I think your country uh, will thank you and i just like to thank you all very, very much for this wonderful honor. Maybe we can see each other next year. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Bye-bye.
1: The annual awards banquet of the 40th annual conference of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers continues with the third of four awards. Now, this award is the Jasper G. Chensey MD Volunteer Leadership Award. Once again, here's Paul Bacharach, who chairs the NAATP Awards and Recognition Committee.
5: Okay, for our next award, the Jasper G. Chen C. Volunteer Leadership Award, I'm going to ask one of our committee members, Dave Rotenberg, from Karen, to present our recipient.
8: Thank you, Paul. And uh, Phil, where are you? That's awesome, 47 years, congratulations. Beautiful, anyway. Dave Rotenberg, Chief Clinical Officer for Karen Treatment Centers. It's an honor to represent the NAATP Board. It's an honor to represent Karen, the state of Pennsylvania. Jasper C for those of you who don't know, which is most of the room, this guy was a lights-out doctor from our town in Berks County, right, right near Karen. He was the best friend or one of the best friends of the treatment and recovery Field and uh, population in the state of Pennsylvania. Okay, so we love this guy. He's beloved. We have places named after him, and he's a fantastic, was a fantastic human being. Of course, most honored to represent Ben Zintak. Ben Zintak, uh, he has a zest for life, he has a zest for Karen, thank God. This guy gives to us. His time, his talent, his passion, his passion for our mission, his money. Um, He's twice been our board chairman. Dick Karen's nephew, he's 71 or 72 years old right now. And for all of his life, he's been of Karen, around Karen, and part of our fabric. So we're just, I could go on and on about his generosity of spirit, his generosity in general. I do have a few stories about Ben that I like. Um, He is, in the last three or four years, going blind. And Ben is, I think, he's probably 95% blind by now. Um, But that doesn't stop him from being a voracious reader. Doug and I know this because he constantly peppers us with homework assignments, the latest New York Times article evidence based practice and so in an ironic twist going blind but reading more. Uh, he's, the guy still golfs, that's amazing. He still skis. He's, he has a second home in Telluride which makes it sweet to get this award here. And uh, his wife Priscilla puts on a bright pink jacket and he follows her down the slopes. Yeah. Think about that. As a, if that's not a metaphor for life. Following the pink down the slopes. I don't know what is, buddy. So, anyway, uh, if. uh, Yo, I just had to, but that's a true story. That is an absolutely true story. So, uh, we do have a brief video of Ben, um, and so I'd let this dude poop on my lawn any day, man.
9: Ben Zintak, here he is, ladies and gentlemen. And thank you to the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers for this wonderful honor. It is truly meaningful to me. I'm very grateful for those that have helped me understand the world of addiction and of treatment. Doug Tiemann and Dave Rotenberg and others have mentored me wonderfully. I'm also grateful for the 25 years serving on the Karen Board of Directors and five years as its chairman, Uh, this has created enormous amount of satisfaction for me and for my family who has been part of this effort supporting me. I'm particularly grateful for uh, Dr. Jasper Chen-C, who uh, was instrumental in making sure the patient was first, who spent a lot of time promoting this industry, and who would be very happy today to know that the NATAP had uh, instituted the Patient Bill of Rights. I'm also very grateful for my uncle, Dick Karen, who was the ultimate volunteer for his entire lifetime. He did nothing but work with the addict and the treatment of the addict. He showed me what true volunteerism was all about. And when it comes to philanthropy, I've learned what gratitude is all about. When I see patients and their families wanting to give back because of the importance that their counselor, that their counselor assistant, perhaps, their doctor, their psychologist, their psychiatrist, um, their nurse, have helped them in so many different ways. Often they've kept them there when they wanted to leave. They've given them the tools when they did finally leave to find sobriety. My begging for money has very little to do with anything. I'm just a suit reminding them of what our organization and other organizations have done for them. You have saved their lives. Philanthropy is really all about what you have done for them. I will accept this award on behalf of what you have done for them and how easy you have made it for me. Thank you very much and enjoy your evening.
1: The fourth and final award of the 40th Annual Conference of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers recognizes quality improvement, which, by the way, quality assurance is the theme for this year's annual National Addiction Leadership Conference here in Denver at the Omni Resort. Once again, your MC for this year's awards, the president and CEO of Gateway Rehab, and the chair of the NAATP Awards and Recognition Committee, Mr. Paul Bacharach, with this year's winner of the James W. West MD Quality Improvement Award.
5: Okay, for our next award, the Jasper G. Chenzi Volunteer Leadership Award, I'm going to ask one of our committee members, Dave Rotenberg, from Karen, to present our recipient.
8: Thank you, Paul. And uh, Phil, where are you? That's awesome, 47 years, congratulations. Beautiful. Anyway, Dave Rotenberg, Chief Clinical Officer for Karen Treatment Centers. It's an honor to represent the NAATP board. It's an honor to represent Karen, the state of Pennsylvania. Jasper C. for those of you who don't know, which is most of the room, this guy was a lights-out doctor from our town in Berks County, right, right near Karen. He was the best friend or one of the best friends. Of the treatment and recovery uh, field and uh, population in the state of Pennsylvania. Okay, so we love this guy. He's beloved. We have places named after him, and he's a fantastic, was a fantastic human being. Of course, most honored to represent Ben Zintak. Ben Zintak, uh, he has a zest for life, he has a zest for Karen, thank God. This guy gives to us his time, his talent, his passion, his passion for our mission, his money. Um, he's twice been our board chairman. Dick Karen's nephew, he's 71 or 72 years old right now. And for all of his life, he's been of Karen, around Karen, and part of our fabric. So we're just. I could go on and on about his generosity of spirit, his generosity in general. I do have a few stories about Ben that I like. Um, He is, in the last three or four years, going blind. And Ben is, I think, he's probably 95% blind by now. Um, But that doesn't stop him from being a voracious reader. Doug and I know this because he constantly peppers us with homework assignments, the latest New York Times article, evidence-based practice and so in an ironic twist, going blind but reading more. Uh, he's, the guy still golfs. That's amazing. He still skis. He's, he has a second home in Telluride which makes it sweet to get this award here. And uh, his wife, Priscilla, puts on a bright pink jacket and he follows her down the slopes. Yeah. Think about that. A, if that's not a metaphor for life. Following the pink down the slopes, I don't know what is, buddy. So, anyway, uh, if uh, yo, I just had to. But that's a true story. That is an absolutely true story. So, uh, we do have a brief video of Ben, um, and so I'd let this dude poop on my lawn any day, man. Ben Zintak, here he is,
9: ladies Good and gentlemen. And thank you to the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers for this wonderful honor. It is truly meaningful to me. I'm very grateful for those that have helped me understand the world of addiction and of treatment. Doug Tiemann and Dave Rotenberg and others have mentored me wonderfully. I'm also grateful for the 25 years serving on the Karen Board of Directors and five years as its chairman, uh, this has created enormous amount of satisfaction for me and for my family, who has been part of this effort supporting me. I'm particularly grateful for uh, Dr. Jasper Chen C, who uh, was instrumental in making sure the patient was first, who spent a lot of time promoting this industry, and who would be very happy today to know that the NATAP had uh, instituted the Patient Bill of Rights. I'm also very grateful for my uncle, Dick Karen, who was the ultimate volunteer for his entire lifetime. He did nothing but work with the addict and the treatment of the addict. He showed me what true volunteerism was all about. And when it comes to philanthropy, I've learned what gratitude is all about. When I see patients, and their families wanting to give back because of the importance that their counselor, that their counselor assistant perhaps, their doctor, their psychologist, their psychiatrist, um, their nurse have helped them in so many different ways. Often they've kept them there when they wanted to leave. They've given them the tools when they did finally leave to find sobriety. My begging for money has very little to do with anything. I'm just a suit reminding them of what our organization and other organizations have done for them. You have saved their lives. Philanthropy is really all about what you have done for them. I will accept this award on behalf of what you have done for them and how easy you have made it for me. Thank you very much and enjoy your evening.
8: Thank you.
5: Okay, for our uh, last award, we're going to move back into the quality realm the James W. West MD Quality Improvement Award. Uh, this will be presented by Becky Flood, Executive Director of Ashley, also a member of the National Association Board. Becky should actually get an achievement award herself because of. The four awardees this evening, she nominated three of them. So, <laughs> thank you.
3: Thank you. I don't think there's anything better in our profession and field than lifting others up for all that they do. And uh, as I look out and get to have this view just for a moment tonight, there is an amazing sea of professionals, many of whom I know, that do miraculous things every day, all day long. And so, really, to all of us, thank you this evening. But it is my distinct honor this evening and pleasure um, that we all have tonight to honor such distinguished awardees. The James W. West MD Quality Improvement Award was established only in the year 2000. The award recognizes new successful treatment advances that improve the quality and or quantity of treatment. James W. West, for those of you that don't know, was the first medical director at the Betty Ford Center. And he became a world-renowned addiction doc before there was ever really ever addiction docs. So this evening, it is our distinct pleasure that this award again is going to be received by a notable physician he has dedicated the last 25 years of his career to the research of best medical practices in treating addiction during the last 25 years doctor Wilson Compton has helped our nation better understand the epidemic we currently face and the scientific solutions that will help us overcome its devastating wake Dr. Compton serves as our nation's deputy director to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. NIDA supports, for those of you that don't know, most of the world's research on all health aspects of drug abuse and addiction related to preventing drug abuse, treating drug addiction, and addressing all other health concerns related to substance use disorders. Dr. Compton received his undergraduate degree from Amherst and his medical degree from Washington University. He has multiple scientific achievements that include authoring over 150 articles related to substance use disorders. He is widely cited in many papers on the opiate crisis that we face today, and he is also a recipient of many awards. So without further ado, we invite Dr. Compton to the stage to receive the James W.S. M.D. Quality Improvement Award and to give him 15 minutes to overview all of his work for us.
10: Well, thank you, Becky, and it's... Certainly a pleasure being here. I'm looking for my slide-moving device, but we'll, while, I'm, while I'm figuring that, it's, it's right over here. Um, w- w- while we're getting the uh, logistics of my presentation ready, uh, what, I, what I wanted to say was a c- c- couple of words about what I'm doing here. F- first off, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here in person and not being represented with a video. I, When I got this, uh, uh, the notification about this, I was actually kind of surprised. My cousin sent me an email that was kind of, it was hard to understand. He said, call me, there's something good I gotta tell you. Well, it took me a few days to get back to them, but then they were able to explain that uh, through some fortuitous circumstances that my cousin who has been a long time in recovery and working in the recovery centers in Wilmington, uh, Delaware had 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 gotten me to come give a lecture there a few months ago, and Becky Flood saw me and was, I, I believe, impressed by what I had presented and the work that I represented, and so she nominated me for this award, and I, I, I had no idea. I was very pleasantly surprised. It also encouraged me to take a look and learn a little more about NAATP because I, I had heard of it, but I didn't know enough about it, and it's actually kind of a big deal for a government official to accept an award. Um, so I had to send it to our ethics committee and our policy team, and the good news is the ethics committee had no problem, but their review isn't actually as careful as our policy group who came back and said, oh, no, no, these are the good guys. And... and I. <laughs> And I certainly got a flavor of that by listening to Marvin with his uh, remarks uh, at the start of this night uh, to really highlight the importance of ethics and quality of care. We don't have decent care if you don't have the highest ethics. And I absolutely personally believe that and I'm so proud and pleased to know that your organization is standing up for it and putting your money where your mouth is. Uh, While that may mean a short-term hit to your bottom line, I am quite certain that it will lead to long term survival and long term success because it will allow you to step forward when others are falling by the wayside on their own swords of their own doing, that you all will have the good behavior to provide some of the answers that the public really needs. So I, I'm, I'm really pleased with your focus on quality and ethics as your major themes. Our, our, our profession absolutely needs this. Now I'm going to highlight for you, I think I was given what, an hour and a half to speak to you? Oh, no, no. <laughs> Just a few minutes. Um, I, I, of course, I'm going to focus on the opioid crisis because that's been what's driving attention. But as we heard um, from Marvin, uh, th- this is, uh, in some ways, what, what, what explains all the attention to this? There are more people dying of alcohol-related conditions in any year. It's about 88 to 90,000 dying prematurely from alcohol. You didn't mention the largest addiction killer uh, in the US or internationally, which would be tobacco. Close to a half a million people uh, lose their lives prematurely due to tobacco every single year and when you look inside of our patients that we treat, we ignore that to our peril, that's what's going to kill our patients uh, in the long run and so it's it's been a real revolution even in our own uh, uh, field to begin to focus on tobacco issues but, but why all this attention to opioids? Well, I think the attention is explained by this map. These maps show the rates of overdose deaths in 1999, that's where it's blue and greenish with a few little sparks here and there, but not a lot of activity. These are color coded so you can easily interpret them. But what happens with the most recent data? Well, you see how this fire has spread all across the country. Every single part of the US has been impacted by the opioid crisis. Uh, and, and, and as uh, uh, society, and as individuals, we notice changes in things. We become inured to static devastation, but when you start making it worse, day after day, year after year, we really notice that and wonder, when's it going to strike us? And the, the unfortunate answer is, it's hit every part of our country, every family, every region, and every county. Now, within that, there's another key lesson. Some areas are a lot harder hit than others. And so that's what Sam Quinones was helping us understand, some of the broad social determinants of these conditions, whether that's the loss of jobs in rural Appalachia that was a setup for people uh, 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 wanting some relief somewhere outside of themselves. Also, the fact that there was heavy physical labor in those areas meant that you had physical damage. And we had the unscrupulous medical purveyors taking advantage of that uh, in many ways. Now, as much as we think about this as one sort of crisis related to opioids, and and as a physician I I do think of it that way, the brain doesn't distinguish between a pill oxycodone, a, a heroin powder, or a fentanyl powder. But the devastation for each of these is different on a social perspective, and, and some of the consequences in our, in our patients are different between them. So let's walk through very briefly about how this epidemic and this crisis has evolved. If I'd spoken to you a few years ago, I would have only focused on the prescription painkillers, because that's what was increasing through the 2000s in terms of the, the overdose deaths. Of course, it started with excess prescribing driven in, in no small part by the unscrupulous purveyors of these, but also by a desire by physicians to relieve suffering. And, and we want our doctors to relieve suffering. We also know that these are absolutely essential medications when you have surgery, when you have bandage changes that are necessary, when you've suffered from horrible burns, you're extremely grateful for these medications to allow those life-saving treatments to take place. But when they're over-prescribed, particularly in outpatient settings, the devastation has been enormous. And we see it in the overdose deaths skyrocketing. Heroin followed on its heels as a number of people, starting with the prescription opioids, shifted over to heroin. And the drug dealing that Sam Quinones describes was part and parcel of this, where there were smart entrepreneurs that figured out, huh, there are millions and millions of people misusing prescription pills we can only get them to sample heroin, their brains will quickly tell them it's the same chemical. And it's often cheaper, and once they figure it out, it can be readily available. Most people actually don't make that transition, but enough do to have just devastating consequences. Now, what's been really a shock to all of us, me included, has been the emergence of fentanyl as as the the compound that's causing all this devastation in the last few years. And you notice that that really just took off in the last couple of years. This is really all about economics again. This is a compound manufactured in some, according to my DEA friends, some 10,000 factories in China and then exported directly to the U.S., It was not illegal to manufacture in China. Now it is now. In the last year, our State Department negotiated that and the Chinese are coming along. They didn't have an internal problem so they weren't paying much attention to it. It was just another thing that their factories could create that somebody could order from overseas. Just like you might order toys or uh, machinery parts. You can order fentanyl over the internet. Uh, At least I'm told that. I don't personally know quite how it works. It's facilitated by the phenomenal profits. So about a thousand, and I'm impressed that the Wall Street Journal created this graphic. About a thousand dollars worth of raw materials can be sold on the streets in the U.S. for about a million dollars. Now, even accounting for a number of middlemen in between those steps, that's still a phenomenal motivator of really awful behavior. Now, the other thing that facilitates this is the potency of fentanyl. It's 50 times more potent than heroin. All right, that's an, 50 times, what does that mean? Sounds like a lot. All right, how do you understand that? If I took a cup of pure heroin, not dilute street level, but pure heroin and dumped it out here, you'd be pretty horrified. You'd go, that's a big pile of, uh, of heroin that can be divided up into small ampules, small little glassine uh, vials, glass vials or in envelopes. Well, how much fentanyl would be the biological equivalent of a cup of pure heroin? One teaspoon one little teaspoon that wouldn't look so dangerous to most of us has the same devastation as a cup of heroin. Well, to me, that says why uh, keeping this from coming across our borders may not be so easy because the quantities are so small. Even you and I could figure out how to smuggle a teaspoon of something. And a teaspoon would be the equivalent of a cup of heroin, which can cause so much devastation in our streets. So that's... That's how economics have driven all three major components of this crisis in major ways. Now it's not just the overdose deaths, we've seen increasing prenatal exposure with uh, use of opioids and misuse of opioids by pregnant women. We've seen infectious diseases uh, increasing with hepatitis C spreading around the country and an outbreak of HIV in Scott County, Indiana, and possibly a new outbreak in Massachusetts driven either by prescription opioid misuse or generally by sharing infected syringes. So this tells us that we need to look at the underlying behavior of addiction because it has so many devastating consequences. Our government is focusing on this with a multi-component strategy, and I I, I think that is an important reflection, that these are complex conditions that require a thorough, complete answer, whether that's prevention, whether that's saving lives acutely by distributing naloxone so that we can allows somebody to breathe again so that they have the opportunity to go to the Ashley Center, the Karen Foundation, or other treatment programs and treatment centers around the country. I can't do treatment and neither can you with a deceased body, so we're grateful that we can save lives acutely, but that's not the answer. That's just a very first step. And of course, we're pleased that there's improvements in treatment, and I'll go over some of these in just a minute. I'm going to mention to you prevention. I don't know how many of you all are involved in your community coalitions, but we haven't emphasized this a whole lot. We have universal family support approaches that can actually reduce the development of the the misuse of opioids by those kids when they reach their late teens and early 20s. So if you can help your community coalitions implement evidence-based prevention for middle school kids, you can make your community safer and help the health of those children that, are, that participate in those programs. A lot of your of your facilities participate in these. That's why I mentioned this in passing. Now, of course, I'm from the National Institute on Drug Use. I'm an addiction psychiatrist. and So I'm going to emphasize the role of medications. We've, we have three medications. I'm grateful that I have these as tools in our armamentarium. The problem is they are markedly underused. Uh, We see this uh, both in terms of whether there's enough treatment capacity, even if every provider of buprenorphine were prescribing at their maximum, but even when you go to treatment programs that say that they are going to take care of people with an opioid use disorder, medications are often not even possible in those facilities, and I I don't think that's right. I'm not saying they're the answer for everybody, but they ought to be available to people for those who choose that pathway, because the evidence is clear that they can help people survive and improve the outcomes. Buprenorphine treatment can help with primary care outcomes. That's one example. It can reduce emergency department visits. These are just a couple of the distal uh, uh, examples of how in Massachusetts we've seen their model of integrating buprenorphine into a full range of treatment services can improve outcomes. Now, we've been supporting a lot of science in this area, and I'll highlight a couple of studies for you. There's a, a, an important study coming out of Yale showing that They were tired of seeing people with opioid addiction coming into their ER over and over again and never really following up with the treatment down the street. So they started administering and inducting people onto buprenorphine in the emergency department with follow-up within the next couple of days. That made a big difference in terms of treatment engagement and at least short-term outcomes. No, we're not really clear how this is gonna end up leading to recovery, because that's only the first step. But it's at least a way to, to change what happens where our patients show up, which is often the emergency department. In criminal justice settings, adding naltrexone, adding the extended release injectable naltrexone helped improve their outcomes. These are people on probation and parole, so they're already at least under thorough supervision, but adding medications made them much less likely to relapse during the first few months of supervision. Uh, We've been working to compare buprenorphine with the extended-release naltrexone. And the two studies that were released a few months ago suggest that they are about equally effective once you induct somebody onto naltrexone. And that's that's an important step. And then it's difficult to get people clean and sober long enough to start them on the extended-release naltrexone, because you have to be off of opioids for about 10 days, or else when you get that injection, you will be really miserable and there's no turning back the serious withdrawal symptoms. Uh, Just the other day we saw a new medication approved by the FDA for withdrawal, so we may have a new treatment for allowing detoxification and and, uh, uh, helping people over those initial steps of treatment with this medication called lofexidine. Now I'm going to end just by talking to you a little bit about a new initiative at NIH. We've had a tremendous amount of attention to the opioid crisis, and we're trying to translate this into a broad-based set of initiatives that can change our entire field. I totally agree that it's not just about opioids. That's the issue of the day. But I'm hopeful that through this crisis and through the attention that we're getting, we can transform the whole addiction field so that the private insurers will pay attention to the full range of recovery services that are necessary for these chronic long-term conditions, that we can start thinking about three- and five-year outcomes, as Dr. DuPont uh, and I and a couple others have been emphasizing that we can start thinking long-term and not sort of the short-term fix-all that, of course people would like that, but it doesn't work. So what can we do to change our system of care? Can we use the new resources to test some of these models? I certainly hope so. We're really pleased that Congress was extremely generous and allocated $500 million to the National Institutes of Health uh, for both developing better treatments for pain that don't include addictive opioids. As well as new treatments for opioid addiction and overdose, so with this money we hope to develop long-term approaches. And in particular, I'm very proud of a set of community-based interventions where we think a holistic approach at a community level might be a way to a- 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 arrest this crisis in the hard- some of the hardest-hit areas. It sounds good; no one's ever actually put it into into practice. So that's one of the things we'd like to test. I'm really quite honored to receive this award. Um, I am so thrilled that it's focused on quality improvement and on the ethics of our field. And uh, on behalf of the National Institute on Drug Abuse and me personally, I wanna thank you very much for this honor and I look forward to many more years of working with all of you. Thanks a lot.
0: been listening to part one of recovery coast to coast broadcasting from seattle washington carried live on khho am850 in tacoma washington and heard nationally in streaming audio at www.recoverycoasttocoast.org we invite you to stay tuned for part two of recovery coast to coast if you've been in continuous recovery for at least a year would like to share your story with others, please send us an email at coast at comcast.net. For more information about future programs, please visit www.recoverycoasttocoast.org, where you can listen to, download, or podcast our last five shows, as well as find information on upcoming programs. This is K-H-H-O AM 850 in Tacoma, Washington, broadcasting from Seattle. Welcome to Recovery Coast to Coast, broadcasting from Seattle, Washington, carried live on K-H-H-O in Tacoma, Washington, and carried nationally in streaming audio at www.recoverycoasttocoast.org. Two hours of interviews and features. Plus questions and comments about this one day at a time adventure in personal recovery as we share experience, strength, and hope with others so that they may recover from alcohol and other drug and behavioral addictions. And now, Recovery Coast to Coast is on the air. Here's your host, Neil Scott.
1: Welcome back once again to Recovery Coast to Coast. I'm Neil Scott. We are at the 40th National Addiction Treatment Conference. It's in beautiful Denver, Colorado, presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, NAATP. Our broadcast is made possible by Sundown M Ranch, one of the oldest and most successful treatment programs in America. They treated over 200,000 people over the last 50 years. There's a lot of great treatment programs here in Denver at this particular conference uh, from all over the country. A lot of good sponsors and exhibitors, and and there's an exhibitor that I was kind of fascinated by. I walked by several times and there was no one there, and then I just went by a third time. And there was Mark Rappaport. He's with ePreventions, and their website is ePreventions.com. Tell me a little bit about your program. You do a lot of stuff with alumni and with
11: treatment programs that are putting together good, serviceable alumni programs. Well, thank you. What we do is we are essentially filling a gap in the continuum of care that uh, as a technology gap that exists in between the EHR systems that are used by treatment providers, health record systems that they use to manage their clients while they're in treatment, and uh, and then when they discharge, uh, what what uh, typically happens is, is we're as an industry providing acute care to a person with a chronic disease, and uh, there's very few resources made available. Uh, a combination of reasons, you know, part of it's the you know, insurance is, is looking for. Uh, data and outcome measurements that prove the efficacy of, of these long-term uh, care-oriented systems, but also it's just maybe just a combination of many factors. So what we do is we provide, it's an alumni database, it's, it's a wonderful uh, tool that uh, treatment providers can use to uh, better manage their alumni population. How does it work? Well, it's, it's, again, it's not an app that's designed for the user uh, kind of a do-it-yourself recovery app, but what it is is it's, it's a application that's web-based and it's, uh, it's all, all the data stored in the cloud and it's all HIPAA compliant and it's very safe and secure. Uh, but basically what the uh, treatment providers would then have the ability to uh, share data from their existing systems and populate our database and then give each and every client their own individualized recovery plan. And just like with anything else, you plan your work, you work your plan. Uh, if you want to have an exercise plan, you know, you've got to sit down and figure out, well, how are you going to change the way you eat, and how are you going to change the way you sleep, and how are you going to change the way you exercise. And, and it's, there's a series of, of healthy choices that a person's able to get healthier. Well, it's, with addiction, it's, it's, it's also a, a series of choices. Without the support of the organization where these people found their recovery, it's hard for them oftentimes to, to stay sober. And that's why we have such high relapse rates. Uh, but, but but this system is designed specifically to give the tools to the organization that provides the treatment to be able to stay in better communication with their clients when they discharge, and to uh, be a, a source of encouragement, and to be there for them when they need help, and and really just giving them the tools to have visibility on a large. Uh, number of people because as you can imagine if an organization has 50 clients and every month and, and then they have a new 50 client at the end of the year they've got 600 clients yeah. so it's a growing body of, of people and, and all of them need help so it's a, it's a wonderful tool to help them do a, a more effective job at providing quality care
1: Mark Rappaport joining us on recovery coast to coast he is the CEO of ePreventions that's ePreventions.com I'm fascinated because I've always felt that One of the things that was a missing link in this field for many, many years, and I've been around for a long time, has been been alumni programs, people who get, you know, there are a lot of programs today that treat and release. They're, They're more interested in getting people in bed than they are following them once they get out of inpatient treatment. And and to be able to put a management program together for people leaving treatment that is going to be solid, that's going to keep them connected, that's going to keep them involved with the community is absolutely essential. And it sounds like you've taken the technology and have put that together. What have you found out in some of the first programs you started working with?
11: Well, I it's, it's, uh, appreciate the question. You know, this is a really wonderful group of providers here at the uh, NAATP conference and and uh, in fact some of our earliest adopters, our earliest customers are you know either members or in some cases they're board members and mm-hmm. they're, they're very visionary people here and I, I, it brings to mind uh, last night I think there, uh, it aired on HBO uh, a wonderful show uh, John Oliver, I love John Oliver, I watch it all the time oh, yeah. but it really was critical of, of our industry and it's true but I think what they didn't point out was how wonderful this group of organizations that are part of NAATP and how committed they are to doing doing things the right way, how genuine and serious and earnest they are, and uh, and how many people have benefited by the by the care and, and how many lives have changed, and you know you oftentimes don't hear those things because they're not it's media sensational, but um, we found that um, the the results are are quite compelling and and. and uh, Industry, the industry-wide kind of generally accepted numbers is that the relapse rates are you're somewhere in the 70 to 80 percent. That is, a person that goes into residential care has a 70 or 80 percent chance within a year of relapsing. Uh, what we found is, as uh, we're significantly reducing those numbers, it's hard to quantify exactly how much, but it's substantially lower we're finding that by using our tool and this again we just launched the product at, at the end of last year so we've only got six months of data but next year at NAATAP I'll be able to answer with some very hard numbers but we're seeing a, a number of people that have relapsed um, received communication from the organization they say thank you so much I, I really need help and they come back uh, we found a number of people that are just you know just so happy that somebody cares and that they're calling to defend the treatment industry, you know, a lot of these people that are charged with the responsibilities of taking care of the alumni, oftentimes are answering phones and running groups, and very, they're the rock stars of recovery. Yeah, these yeah. they're amazing, and so what our our uh, tools have made them much more productive. Yeah. It gives them the ability to have visibility on their on their alumni, and these people love to. I mean, they feed off it. They they get so much positive. Uh, benefit themselves from helping others and so it's a symbiotic product that really allows everybody as a community to do a better job and the, the patients benefit and the, and the alumni that, that volunteer in the alumni departments benefit and the, the organizations benefit they benefit financially as well you know they get people to come back instead of having to spend all kinds of money to market they're getting people that you know through referrals and,
1: it's a win all the way around. All the way around. All the yeah. way around. Well, I'm hoping that when you uh, are in Washington, D.C. next year for the NAATP. I'll be there. You'll be able to tell me all about the wonderful successes that have I added will. I on. Because I, I think what you're doing is great. I, I love the focus on alumni and, and you know, people who've been through treatment programs. They are, uh, they are the family. They are the family, and they, they need to feel connected. You're doing good work. Thank you very much. Mark Rappaport joining us on Recovery Coast to Coast. You can check out what this is all about by going to ePreventions.com. I'm Neil Scott the program, Recovery Coast to Coast. We are at the 40th Annual Conference of NAATP in Denver, Colorado. We'll take a short time out, we'll be back with more right after this.
2: Are you afraid? Afraid of life without drugs and alcohol? There is help and hope at Sundown M Ranch. At Sundown, the focus is on you and your disease. You will learn how to live without depending on drugs and alcohol. Sundown M Ranch is nationally recognized for effective and affordable alcohol and drug treatment programs. Reclaim your life. Replace your fears with hope. Go to www.sundown.org right now to learn more.
1: Welcome back to Recovery Coast to Coast. I'm Neil Scott, and we are on the road in Denver, Colorado, at the 40th anniversary conference of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. In the last hour, you heard from this year's amazing award winners. In this hour, we're going to hear from the executive director of NAATP, Marvin Ventrell, with highlights from his opening remarks. Now, Marvin is a great guy, and just what this organization needed when he was brought on board some three-plus years ago. His 30-year career has been in the area of advocating for those in need. He's a lawyer. He's a teacher, an author, a treatment executive, and a person in long-term recovery. And he is without question a great leader for a great organization, the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. Let's listen to some of Marv's opening remarks.
4: Hey, we're going to do, you know, we've sort of restructured the conference this year, it, both in terms of having a, a kind of an academic curriculum in terms of producing the quality assurance competencies, but also just the structure of how the sort of social stuff works. This seemed to work really well. We're going to open each, each year, my plan is, our plan is to open it, uh, next year as well in DC with this opening night banquet we'll have even more room and um, and gather that way and and do our awards and then begin in earnest with with the substantive well they're not non-substantive with the with the more pedantic things I- I- in the next day and then give you some time off that's why we've, we've allowed Monday we, best- we were so busy our schedule was so packed over the years that you know maybe part of taking care of yourself is to allow you some time to to be with one another, and, and so that's why we have, to have tonight off. I was feeling really good after last night, right? You guys, yeah, I, uh, it felt good. Didn't it feel good? There's energy here that I haven't felt for a while, and I haven't felt everywhere I go when we do this work and, and, and at other conferences, and so we're doing something here. I really believe this, you guys. This is community. It's all about community. We belong together. We will fail without community. Our message individually and our work individually isn't strong enough uh, to withstand forces that are really negative. You know, understand this, believe this, this group coming together, and not just when we're here for the weekend, but when we go back home, this group understanding that we are brothers and sisters in in this uh, sacred work is going to win the day. Because it is exhausting. I, I said some time ago, palpable sense of unease. We get up in the morning, there's a palpable sense of unease. It's usually the first call I get, somebody complaining about something somebody has done that's unethical. It's been pretty easy, right, to get, to get negative about all of this stuff. But man, you know, I really believe this. What, what a privilege to have the history that's been built, to have the tools that have been built, and have the knowledge uh, on how to treat addiction, amidst a storm of chaos and horrible opioid crisis uh, and, and, and you know, we have the answers, right? I mean, we don't know everything, but we know how to approach this. Um, so this is opportunity, you know, that's just not hyperbole. This is, the, you know, problem or challenge, yeah, well, yeah. It, 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 it's a challenge that we are put here to, to manage now. So I was feeling pretty good. Last night, and I got up, and then I heard the the John Oliver bit was happening, and I got up this morning, and I counted them. 23 emails and 4 texts. Marvin, what are we going to do about this John Oliver thing? It's like, damn, can I get a break around here? Um, Nothing. It was wonderful. So first of all, uh, John Oliver's hilarious. I love that guy. and His staff is excellent. They do good research, and they did an expose. How many saw it or heard about it? Yeah, not everybody, but a bunch. They did an expose on the addiction treatment field, the chaos. And it was basically a, uh, um, an expose that this field is in terrible shape and harming people, and um, it's just awful out there. I knew it was coming, I didn't know it was gonna be last night. I talked to the producer, I'm gonna talk to the producer again today you know, I like these people, she's great. I talked to her at, at length and I, uh, about all the things that are happening, and one of the things that they did last night on the John Oliver show was say, and, and we've contacted the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, put our, they put our logo up there, and they acknowledge that there are serious problems in certain sectors of the addiction industry. That's the right thing to say, right? You know, the, the wrong thing to say, the problem would have been this, we talked to this National Trade Association who says there's no problem, right? That's where we would be in trouble. That's where we would not be speaking our truth. So it's by speaking our truth uh, that we will get through all of this. Now I'm, I'm disappointed that they couldn't, in, in the midst of exposing all these charlatans, uh, that they couldn't have identified the good, right? Um, that they couldn't have said, you know, by the way, there's a whole lot of amazing, talented, professional people who produce great treatment and save people's lives every day, and here's an example of a few of them. Throw us a bone, John Oliver, for God's sake. Um, But they don't do that, right? Um, and, and, And that's not who wants to hear that, right? That's not the sexy news story. Did you, did you hear, did you listen to Sam Quinones? Uh, man, I love this guy. He wrote Dreamland uh, that we gave the journalism award for last night. It's just a marvelous piece of work, and he's a really cool guy. And one of the things he said was, look, I'm a journalist. I understand what plays. I understand what's going to get out there, and the good work that you do isn't. And it gets so exhausting, and you get up every morning, and you're doing this, and then they tell all this negative stuff, yeah, but what about me? Here's the deal. <laughs> At some point in your professional life, You basically have to realize that you can't fix most things, right? That you can't control very much, that this is going to be a long haul. It's going to be very difficult. And what we do is we get up every day and we fight the good fight. That's what, and that's okay, right? That's a spiritual endeavor. Amidst a storm of chaos and unethical behavior and, and, and treatment and fake treatment programs killing people, uh, you know, there was a getting people high and prostituting the women in their treatment center. These are things that have actually happened amidst all of that. We just get up every day. We try to message as best we can. And, I'm, and, and that's what the association is doing is to speak for the, for the industry. And we're, we're getting it out there. I mean, we've got SAMHSA's attention and Congress's attention. And, and you know, the New York Times has done a wonderful job with a number of things. We've got Google's attention. I mean that's God talking to Google. It's like, you know, I went to the mothership with my with Pete in in California. It was so intimidating. I was like I'm on the Google campus. You don't just levitate, by the way. It's got sidewalks and everything. But you know, I was thinking, I don't know how to dress to go to a Google meeting. I'm a business person. I got, you know, this is how I dress. I don't think I don't think I'll fit in. What if they don't like me? You know, it's like all these really smart millennials are running around and. So I figured out the deal with dressing up at Google is just to have to make sure your hoodie is zipped up. Then, <laughs> so but so you know you got this you got to attack this thing in a lot of different ways and and, the, and and one of them and the most important is to get up every morning and fight the good fight and do the good work and we know what to do and just keep doing that and if you can't take it get out cuz we're going to we're going to be here at the end just like we always have been for 40 years. And the reason we've survived is because of community and the good people that are our core folks. I want to talk about a few of the things just to sort of contextualize uh, where we're at that we talked about last night and then talks more specifically about this quality assurance initiative. It really is important to understand that we've won a lot of the battles. Right, John Driscoll is, is the one who has sort of hammered this home for me. Don't forget Marvin, you know, we've won in a lot of ways. Right? This didn't used to be the case that there was, in fact, recognition that this is a chronic brain disease with psychosocial spiritual components for which there is a course of treatment. Right? We, we, we recognize what recovery looks like. There may be 23 million people in this country suffering from addiction, um, but there's over 20 million people in this country that identify as in long-term recovery from addiction. Right? People get well. People die. But people get well, and that's, it's important to recognize that. Stigma isn't the biggest issue, as far, as far as I know anymore, as far as I believe anymore. Still, it still exists, but it's not like it was. Congress is paying attention in a way that they, they never have before. Um, the Affordable Care Act is still intact, and, and we're going to work our way through that. And parity is the law. It's not fully realized, but we're making progress there. And that's very much the focus of our public policy efforts in Washington. We know about, more about treating addiction than we ever have. We have more tools than we've ever had. We understand this thing is a continuum of care, right? Um, it's not an acute period. Nobody's confused about that anymore. The addiction treatment center that was named on John Oliver last night that said, you come here for 30 days and you're cured, you know, it, n- nobody who has any sense says that. Um, you know. So we, we get the continuum of care, and we get that people get well. But there's this climate, right? And so that's what has generated our initiative. We started, uh, I mean, we've, we've been at this for a while. We've been talking about ethics for a while, but, but we ended up in this place, and we said we've got to basically garner all of the NAATP resources in order to produce best practice simultaneously with correcting the bad behavior, right? You don't get to be ethical over here and, and not ethical over here. If your CEO, if your marketer is, is cheating and buying and selling leads, something's wrong in the clinical program. Right? So this is a holistic deal, folks. can not it, it doesn't work that way. And so you know, much of this is the result of unintended consequences of really good progress, right? Disease recognition and a payment source coming along and all these treatment tools and the opioid crisis getting folks' attention. And all of a sudden, we kind of have what we wish for, and we become very attractive as a growth industry for, for big profits. And that's what's happened. Right? And, there's no, and we should be productive business people, and we should run our programs as businesses, but we have to do that with the right motivation. And, and the, the, the beginning with profit is not the right motivation. So this, you know, I, made, I told you about some calls last night. I got a call from a guy that said, hi, Marva, I'm an addiction entrepreneur. I wanted to talk to you, and I hung up on him. Um, so it's these nonsensical margins of profit not the least of which is, is, is insurance fraud billing and, and your analysis that's such a problem. That type of aggressive behavior relative to business that some people in this country admire, is, has no place in this work. Right? It doesn't fit in a spiritual model, and that's not to say that there's naivete about being a business person. Right? There's balance here. The pockets of harm, you know, there, there are a number of different pockets of harm. There's criminals. Sociopathic criminals, right? Who who just basically have no uh, 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 sense of empathy toward other human beings and harm them. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's just damn ethical fine people that will never do anything wrong because they just don't. And then there's these folks in the middle uh, that get uh, that push it push it too far. And that's really the population that we're mostly concerned about. Plus the young person who doesn't know any better. So all of our work is really designed to, to address that. Um, and um, if we don't, you know the, the harm is just too great. Uh, the client gets hurt, the, the good provider gets a black eye, the industry gets a black eye, the, and, and the payer gets skittish and feels justified in not, in not paying their bills. So you know, we're working on the policy level to make sure that folks have this information. And um, we have uh, policymakers attention to an extent we never have before and um, our quality assurance principles are gaining initiative. The biggest offender without a doubt is deceptive web marketing. Um, uh, Call directories are no longer allowed to be members of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. They're out. Treatment programs that put up unbranded sites that don't identify themselves uh, as who they are, purporting to be clinical uh, helplines that are, are there in order to direct you to them, they're out, they're gone, we don't have them. Anymore. When we find out that you're lifting other treatment programs' identities in order to market your program, that's a clear violation of our code, you're either gonna stop it or you're gonna leave. Our process allows for that. And at the end of the day, we get to this place which we're, we, uh, of basically human behavior aggregation. You know, aggregating calls in order to understand human behavior, in order to target and victimize people in a way that gets them to your center when it's not based on a clinical practice and a clinical assessment is, is at the heart of the problem, which is very much why we're working with Google. Um, and we're going to talk, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that this morning and then we're going to have the big session the, the legit script people the ceo of legit script John Horton is coming in that's the entity that's met, that's vetting your applications during this beta period it's very complicated it's not fixed yet but we but we're going to we're going to get there um, that's what that piece is all about um, you know the new york times and the verge did a big expose last fall that really showed how the how the purchase of AdWords was the primary corrupting influence that was causing harm to people. Got to get some water here. And so um, we you know we've done some unusual things for a trade association. One of the things is we've given up revenue and given up members in order to be smaller and better. But we also said we're going to limit our own members' ability to market because the bad guys are, are, are um, abusing it. Now, we don't want to do that, right? I mean, what was amazing is I got a few a few sort of like nasty calls about that but mostly all of you said this is so great we understand we can't buy AdWords right now but this thing has to be fixed right the the response was positive and so um, you know we suspended AdWords Google suspended AdWords you recall last year at this conference Google was here and they were still taking the position that look we built a platform we made a playground and you guys aren't playing fair in it that's not our problem well People are dying. It's their problem, right? And they came around. It, it, you know, I got to give Google credit. They came around and they've been listening. They're in the business of making money. Uh, uh, we understand that. But they pulled AdWords. They gave up a lot of revenue for a long time, and it's just now being reintroduced. So they do care about this. You know, AdWords, SEO, and Maps are kind of the three areas that we're working on with them. But SEO, or pardon me. Um, but AdWords is, is the big piece, and um, and it's taken a lot of our, our energy. We worked with LegitScript to come up with these guidelines, and some of the things we want to have happen haven't happened yet. We think some of the requirements are a bit too onerous. But but again, we're working on that. So, so that's the big thing that we're tackling, and it's really complicated. Um, so the first step in all of this was for us to clean our house, right? We've been around for 40 years, we're a national, a trade association and a professional membership society, not an enforcement or policing body. That's not our role, Um, and and nor typically should it be. But we had to assume that role, because somebody has to take the leadership position here. And we can't go to anybody and say, these are the good providers. This is where you'll find them, because it's all about identifying the quality provider. Where do you identify good providers? You know, the John Oliver, I'm all over the board, but uh, the John Oliver show last night had the Tom McClellan clip. You know, I think you might know, Tom Tom has been an important uh, professional in this field for a very long time and has some very important contributions and very important things to say. And he suffered a horrible loss in his family, and it's devastating. But when he says in this clip a couple of things, one of which is... uh, that treatment doesn't work and, and, and also harms people. Tom, you're not helping when you say that. Um, and he also said, and I'm a professional. I work in this field. I'm a scientist, and I understand everything. And I had no idea how to get help. That's not true. I, 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 we know where the good treatment is. So, 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 so I wish they hadn't played that clip. I'm going to talk to her about that. Because um, that's not true, right? Um, and so, you know, this, this messaging is, is, is so important. In any event, what we had to do is say, if, in any, if any of the policymakers are going to listen to us, we can't go out and say, this is where you find the good providers, and then they say, what about that guy? So this has been a hell of a process, because you've got to do it fair, right? We have a due process-based uh, format by which we evaluate providers. And, and, and you know that when you look around, it should look a little different around here, if not perfect. But over 10 entities and 100 campuses and $100,000 were given away by, by my office on January 1st because we can't have them here anymore. And that's a good thing. Now we're going to develop the membership um, beyond the numbers that are here, um, but not the 13,000 that are in the SAMHSA record right? So, I don't want to brag on SAMHSA. Uh, this is a very important group. We have good, 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 you know, the, the, to say that there are 13,000 addiction treatment providers in, in this country and you go on the SAMHSA database to find them is, is, is of almost no value right? That's not any kind of a vetted thing. And so we're not after the 13,000. A lot of those folks aren't even licensed treatment providers. But there are certainly many dozens more who we need to bring into the fold in order to make this thing work. And we're going to, that's the next phase of our development. Because as I've said before, our real value is that we are the place where you're safe and you're recognized as, as the best providers. So that being on the AID, the Addiction Industry Directory, means something. You do not get on NAATP's Addiction Industry Directory just by showing up, right? You have to demonstrate your ethical compliance. You have to demonstrate your values. You have to demonstrate your licensing and accreditation. You have to, and and then you have to be transparent. It's so much about transparency. When you look at a website, when you look at a treatment center, can you really tell who they are and what they do and where they are? And then we also have to educate the consumer that the way you look for health care is the way you look for health care. You don't look for cancer treatment by by, uh, um, thread count and beach location. (laughs) Pools don't get you sober. They're nice. They're for swimming. John Oliver made fun of equine therapy last night. He's a comedian. It was kind of funny. You know, we know there's value to things like that, these these ancillary services. You know, part of the Quality Assurance Initiative is this clinical piece, and we're going to talk about, and and we're releasing this weekend the first draft of the Evidence-Based Practices document from the National Association. We've got a bunch of resources that that are just starting to come out. But one of those resources that came out that got a lot of traction, and I hope you're using it, is the Discernment of Treatment Guide and how to select a treatment program. So we've published a how to select a treatment program that says <laughs> look for health care in the way that you would look for health care. Right? You know, it, this addiction treatment is the only place where, where uh, the vast majority of people find what they believe they need on Google. It's not the way to find health care. So um, we're trying to create brand here uh, and, and lead the way. So that two things happen. One, this is the place where everybody knows they can go to rely, where you can come to be safe, right? And thereby, ultimately, from our bully pulpit and our example of the way we do things, influence the rest of the providers. That's, that's the point of all this. We've got to just keep doing it right.
1: You have been listening to Marvin Ventrell. He is the executive director of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers strong and important comments speaking at the opening session of the 40th annual national addiction leadership conference presented by the national association of addiction treatment providers we'll continue with more from denver colorado at the omni resort and the naatp 40th anniversary conference right after this short timeout,
12: we wasted a lot of years Hoping, praying for things to get better. I was
2: desperate to save our family. That's when I made the contact.
0: She contacted Sundown M. Ranch. Sundown's nationally recognized alcohol and drug treatment program teaches family members how to break down the barriers of denial. They are taught the skills needed to deal with addiction as a family.
2: Now we're making up for lost time. It was the best contact I ever made.
0: Go to www.sundown.org to learn more.
2: Welcome back
1: to Recovery Coast to Coast. I'm Neil Scott, and we are at the historic 40th anniversary celebration and National Addiction Leadership Conference of NAATP, the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers here in Denver, Colorado. We wrap things up on our show with some comments from Jessica Swan. Now, Jessica's the Outcomes Project Manager for NAATP, sharing findings from a three-year project, the data, the media, and the member toolkit. Here's Jessica.
13: I am Jessica Swan. I am an independent contractor hired as the Outcomes Manager for NAATP, and um, I am so excited to say that we have collected data um, on a lot of people across the United States in a cross-site analysis that is ongoing right now. The data analysis is ongoing, but we completed our data collection in April. um, if, if you've ever done research, you know that's a big deal. <laughs> if you've ever worked in this field, which you all have, you know how hard it is to herd cats and um, get people in order and get people to respond and do the work. And I am so grateful for the people that have participated in this study, for the participants themselves uh, signing informed consent to do this, um, to NAATP, the outcomes um It's now called the Research and Education Committee uh, for, and it used to be the Outcomes Committee. All the people that did the work over the years to get this going, Dr. Norm Hoffman for uh, providing us with an original tool that we um, then adjusted for this pilot. Just so many people uh, across the board, and Holland will talk a little bit more about that. Colin Hirsch is our senior researcher um, and uh, led uh, us along the path here with Katie Gelman, who is our research director, uh, both from Omni. Um, We have two other researchers, Mary Parks and um, Natalie Wheeler, who also worked on this project. And, of course, we have a ton of IT people that ran a dashboard for us and built a dashboard and ran it for us. And the list goes on and on, of course, the NAATP staff, and uh, I'm just so grateful for all of you. Um, One thing I wanted to mention is this beautiful little piece of literature that's on your chair is for you, obviously. Um, And it's called the, uh, it's a little clunky, but it is very descriptive, and um, Marvin came up with this title, and I think it's wonderful, the Addiction Treatment Provider Implementation Guide to Standardize Outcomes Measurement also known as a toolkit, outcomes toolkit. (laughs) Um, But this is our uh, preliminary work. And we wanted to provide this to you today so that you can see what the membership is going to get this year. Um, You're going to actually get a toolkit that provides you with the process to implement this in your own centers. Okay, um, So it's very exciting work, and we're, we're really happy to be here. Um, Carl already mentioned, you know, this is three years in the making. We started in 2015. Um, we're going to be wrapping this pilot up this year and providing this toolkit this year for everybody in our membership. Um, the purpose of the pilot was to create and test uh, uh, the instrument and provide a process for you. And you're going to keep hearing that from us. This is about a process of data collection. Um, and we wanted you to be able to learn, know how to do this for yourselves, and standardize it across the United States. That it's kind of weird that that doesn't exist, right? I mean, we do a lot of amazing work with a lot of evidence-based work, and uh, scientifically researched work, or studied work, and yet we don't have this. And we know treatment works for a lot of people and heals families and saves lives, and I, we know so much, and we don't have this part. So this is actually a really huge deal, what's happened here with NAATP and their foresight to get this done. Of course, they wanted it done, you know, as soon as I was hired, um, <laughs> and we worked hard to get that, that going, but that didn't happen. But we are here today, and we are happy to say that it is almost done. Um, So why did we want to do this? Carl alluded to a lot of this. Marv has talked about this already, um, the Quality Assurance Initiative. So if you haven't or you weren't at the last session or the session last night, um, do take a look in your program. Page 66 uh, in the program provides the Quality Assurance Initiative um, components, and outcomes is one of those components. It's uh, letter F, so that's, that's us. Letter F, Outcomes, Measures, Guideline F1 tracking patient outcomes. And so what we know is that so many of you do this on your own, but again, like I said, it's not standardized. And so how could that be? Like How could one center be doing it one way and another doing it another? Or little companies that have started to come up that aren't little anymore are doing it for many of you, yet we don't have a standardized way of looking at this. And so that was really our process and our our hope here. Um, One thing that I thought, you know, my mind has been going crazy because there's just been so much good content already in this short period. Something that Bobby said uh, and Carl and Marv have kind of had this thread of what I think is now how it works. Right, so if you're in a 12-step program, you know about how it works. And um, I, I believe that this is what we're providing. That's our part. This is how it works. And you have to be the ones to implement this to say to the payer, to the mom that has the dying son, this is how it works. And we know this is how it works, and we know because it was studied, and we know because it was tested, and we know now, not just because I saw a lot of people saved, because I personally have seen a lot of people saved from the depths of hell. Um, not just because of that, but because scientifically we know that this works. So um, you know, good business practice is having standards, right? So this is having a standard. You have a standard for how to make the bed and housekeeping and clean the toilet. You have a standard for how to do outcomes now measuring what we do is how it works that is what we're up to okay so here comes holland holland's going to give you what you're really interested in hopefully again not a silver bullet and a magic answer but um this is holland hirsch our senior researcher for our outcomes pilot program
12: Thank you, Jessica. I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to have partnered with the National Association on this project and to be here today to share with you some of the things that we've learned so far, and there is much more for us to learn, and so we'll talk about that all today. I want to start by contextualizing this work within the broader field of outcomes in addiction treatment. Where are we now? Where are we going? This is a pilot, and it's not the beginning and it's not the end. When NAATP set out to do this work, there were three primary goals. The first is to take a step forward in defining common outcomes measures for the field. So we know that things like abstinence and whole health, life satisfaction, mental health, employment are really critical indicators of recovery. But we don't know what those key metrics are in the same way that we might know that hypertension is under control because of a certain blood pressure reading, or because cancer is in remission because of a certain white blood cell count. And so the National Association wanted to embark on this work to start defining and establishing more understanding of that standard. The second aim that we've talked about a lot already is to cultivate best practices and procedures for conducting outcomes research in substance use treatment centers across across the country, for having that more common and collaborative way of doing this work. In the end, NAATP hoped to be able to demonstrate that common and collaborative data collection and research is possible, and to develop a toolkit with easy-to-follow processes, And procedures that are available to all of you with standardized tools and surveys that you can put into place in your own centers. And then finally, of course, through this process, we collected data. And we'll be able to use those data to look at the relationships between treatment and short and long-term outcomes like abstinence for patients, including other key indicators like aftercare utilized, mental health, etc., I also wanna contextualize this work within um, a broader field of research. This is not the only work that has been done in this area. And of course, there's a long history of um, doing outcomes research in the field. For example, the Harvard Cohort Study, a 75-year study on healthy aging that included a subset of patients with alcoholism. There is also the Drug Abuse Treatment Outcome Study, or DATOS study, funded by NIDA. And that was preceded by two other studies in the field. Looking at patients with over 10,000 admissions to um, community-based treatment programs and outcomes over time. And then finally, another large research study in this area that I'm sure you're all aware of is the CATER study. The largest independent evaluation service of substance use treatment programs in the United States. Different from DATOS because it was not federally funded, or part of a government agency. And that work focused on 75,000 adults and 11,000 adolescents receiving both both residential and outpatient treatment services across the United States, resulting in innumerable, innumerable presentations, scholarly articles, and congressional briefings. And many additional subsets of studies came out of that research, looking at the relationship between treatment and outcomes. So the Outcomes Pilot Program exists within a large field of research, but it, we also distinguish it because it's recent. Data collection needs to be ongoing and it needs to be current. The field is ever-changing and we need to stay up to date. The National Association needs to continue this work and to continue data collection and to continue research to understand what is most effective in treatment and how can the best outcomes be achieved for patients. And Then second, of course, this project was really focused not only on the research and advancing understanding in the field, but on testing processes and procedures so that membership can use those lessons learned (laughs) moving forward to collect outcomes data in your own programs. Ah, great. (laughs) Um, So as both Jessica and Carl mentioned, Omni Institute started working with the National Association in 2015 on this project. But the work was long ongoing before that. There was a committee within the association working to develop the process and the survey tools that were utilized as part of the program. When Omni Institute joined the research team, we also were part of the process of onboarding the eight participating pilot sites who ultimately contributed to this research study. Ashley, Addiction Recovery Resources, Karen, Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, New Directions for Women, Seabrook, The Heart of Recovery, Sundown M Ranch, Tully Hill. And all of these organizations contributed data across all time points, which we'll talk about what data collection looked like in a minute. And I want to make a note about the organizations participating. They really ranged in in size and capacity for doing this work. So some have very well-established outcomes research programs. They knew how to do this work before. Some were doing outcomes research for the first time, where smaller programs had less capacity. And so we were really able to draw on lessons learned from a wide variety of individual, or individual treatment centers who can contribute to the knowledge base and to the toolkit that will ultimately be provided to all of you. I also wanna let you know where we are today, and this has been alluded to already. We just completed data collection a couple of weeks ago in April. Um, We will be working over the summer on a rigorous uh, evaluation and testing research questions to result in a final report that will be available, of course, to the participating sites and to the National Association to tell more about that data story. How does treatment affect outcomes? And we're going to be sharing some preliminary data today, and we're going to be talking about lessons learned from the process. Okay, so across the eight sites, 740 patients across the country were enrolled in the pilot study. Approximately 50 to 125 patients per site, depending on the size of the site and the length of the treatment program. And all of the patients enrolled in the study were receiving residential treatment services. Data were collected from study participants at seven time points at intake to treatment, a short survey at discharge, and at one month, three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months from the date of intake. And I just want to pause there to make the point that we focused on standardizing when data would be collected regardless of length of stay in treatment, which of course we also measured, and the length of the programs that were participating in the pilot. The survey tools that were utilized for data collection were developed by Dr. Norman Hoffman, who worked on the CATER study, and is an internationally recognized expert in the area of assessment and outcome evaluation for behavioral health treatment programs. So they're very well informed by a long history of of research and work in this area. The content of the surveys included things, of course, like demographics and substance use history, but also other key factors like support from friends and family, mental health issues, legal issues, treatment utilization, ratings of treatment, continued care, legal issues, et cetera. For this to be a collaborative effort, we needed to put in place processes for data collection to be common across sites that were all across the country. And so we developed an online data collection tool that allowed the survey data collection to happen in a standardized way in the same place. So all of data were entered into this system. It could be accessed anywhere that facilities had an internet connection. Um, And then data were not only collected in the same way, but input in the same way and standardized. The data collection system also gave participating pilot sites access to their data in real time so that they were able to monitor things like the number of patients who had enrolled in the study, when folks needed to be discharged, when follow-ups needed to happen, and access to their data in real time so that they could look at outcomes ongoing as the process unfolded. Another important piece of this work that I wanna talk about and that was very critical to the National Association is that it was conducted with the utmost ethical standards. Any research that is conducted with human subjects needs to be reviewed and approved by an Institutional Review Board, or IRB, and this study was. An IRB determines that research, design, and materials meets an ethical standard for working with human participants. An added layer of protection for this particular study that we obtained is the Certificate of Confidentiality. It's administered by the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and it, it adds an added layer of protection for research participants. And protects against any compulsory legal demands for identifying information or data. We had no reason to suspect that data would be requested for any reason, but this piece adds that added layer of security for any participants providing data as part of the study that it will not be released for any reason. The other piece I want to touch on, which we've talked about a little bit already, is what we mean when we say outcomes research versus marketing. Certainly outcomes research can inform marketing, but when we're talking about this project and this program, we're talking just about examination of patient status after treatment and using those data and that information to inform program learning. When we're talking about marketing, it's more about getting the word about out about your program. Increasing admissions. And like I said, those two, pro- those two processes can inform one another. But w- when we talk about outcomes research, we're more okay with the fact that we might learn some good things and we might learn some areas for improvement. And that's, that's what we're trying to do um, so that we can use those data to, to change the program to do better for patients. Okay. Well, in just a minute, I'm going to share some data with you. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about what we've learned in this process and a little bit more about what will be included in the toolkit. Um, This lessons learned was informed both by the research team and also by the participating pilot sites who were able to provide input on what worked well in their program, what didn't work so well, what do we need to provide for membership as part of that toolkit offering. So first, what worked? Um, We collected outcome data in a common way across eight pilot sites. Um, What enabled us to do this was of course the online data collection system that I've already talked about and also standardized training that was offered to all participating pilot sites, and this is important, not just in collaborative research, but in outcomes research that you would do in your own centers. Really making sure that the staff who are responsible for data collection are informed about what the process is and what they will be asking of patients, not just while they are in treatment, but after they leave treatment. What does follow-up data collection look like? Why is it important that they participate? Why is it important to the organization and organizational learning? We also learned a lot about incentives for this process. Lots of research has indicated that offering incentives to study participants can increase follow-up rates. We're going to talk a little bit more about follow-up rates in a minute. It's really critical to this work. We had a we had a variety of options that were chosen in this pilot. Some sites offered incentives. Some sites didn't. In some instances, that really helped increase follow-up rates. In other instances, it was other factors that contributed. The toolkit will cover some of those best practices for increasing um, follow-up. And then finally, you know, the big success of all of this is that it happened. Data were collected. We're learning. And this work is important, and it's important to continue. And so that's a very big success. Um, of course, there were, was lots that could be improved, um, and so I just want to touch a, on a few of those those items. We've talked a little bit about consistency and collaboration. There was a lot of feedback from sites that there could have been even more. <laughs> for example, collecting data at follow, or for follow-up once patients have left treatment external to the organization so that there's even more uniformity in how um, data are collected and how s- um, participants are talked to about their follow-up outcomes. I talked about incentives in the success se- session, uh, in successes, I want to talk a little bit now about the way that the study is explained to patients and really providing that wraparound understanding about why we're doing this research. That's an area where we could have improved and we could have provided even more training to sites about um, knowing what, what was entailed when patients were signing up to participate in this work. And then finally, I want to make the point that this work takes investment and it takes commitment and it takes time and resources. And we really saw that throughout the course of this pilot program. Collecting data for a year from a large body of participants takes time from staff. It takes organizational commitment from leadership. It takes putting processes into place to manage things like staff turnover for when a research coordinator moves on to another position. How are we going to manage knowledge transfer? How are we going to manage processes so that the data collection continues? All of these things and more will be included in the toolkit. And we're excited to be able to share those lessons with you. So now, like I said, I'm going to share a little bit of data. I'm going to share with you some information about who was included in the study. Like I said, analysis is really, is really starting now. The data are hot off the presses and we're excited to share more in the future. So this study included data from participants, the majority of whom were 25 to 34 years old, though there was a range in the age all the way from 18 to over 65 years old with a fairly even distribution across different age categories. The majority of participants identified as male, a little bit more than half of participants enrolled in the study were male. 92% of the participant population was white. The majority of participants had full-time employment at the time that they enrolled in the study. The majority of participants had used alcohol in the 30 days prior to treatment. The other top used substances in the 30 days prior to treatment were marijuana, benzodiazepines, prescription opioids, cocaine, and heroin. I also want to share a little bit of information about follow-up rates. This is so critical to doing this work. And there was quite a range in terms of success across pilot sites in terms of who they were able to reach ongoing after the point that they had entered into the the pilot program. The the issue with follow-up data collection and the problem with attrition from a study like this is that when we aren't able to collect data at follow-up. It, of course, limits the validity of the data and the generalizability of the data or how useful it is to informing the program. And, of course, there might be differences between people who remain enrolled in the study and people who drop out. So those are really critical factors to, to um, understand about why this piece is so important, and I'm sure you all understand that as well. If we don't reach people after they have left treatment, we don't know what happened to them. We're going to be using this as a learning to inform what we can do better moving forward. Some pilot sites, of course, as you can see, did very well over the course of the study. Other sites had capacity to build. There's research on how to do this research. So um, there is data that suggests that To reach hard-to-use substance using populations, a minimum of 10 contacts are required, and even more with a harder-to-reach population than that. A response rate or a follow-up rate of somewhere in the 70 to 85% range would be considered excellent. As you move into that 60 to 70% range, that's when you start to feel okay but not 100% confident of of what your data can tell you. We do this kind of work with not just the National Association, but individual treatment providers. It's very challenging to reach a high response rate. Even if you don't hit that 60% rate, you can still learn a lot about your program, where you need to improve, and what is working well.
1: Well, that's our show from the 40th anniversary conference of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. Thanks to all of our guests in this program, the conference presenters, Marvin Ventrell and his amazing staff, and you are listeners from around the country. In closing, given the controversies surrounding the treatment field, if you are considering a treatment program for yourself or for someone you know or love, please, please be sure they are members of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. That assures transparency, consistent ethics, and quality treatment. And if you're considering a treatment center that's not a member of NAATP, find out why not. NAATP means quality assurance. Until next time, I'm Neil Scott reminding you that the bright side of addiction is recovery. Pass it on.
0: You've been listening to Recovery coast to coast recovery coast to coast is heard nightly from 10 p.m. till midnight pacific time monday through friday from seattle washington carried live on 850 khho in tacoma washington and heard nationally in streaming audio for information about future programs please visit www.recoverycoasttocoast.org where you can listen to download or podcast our last five shows as well as find information on upcoming programs please join us next time when we share experience strength and hope with others so that they may recover from alcohol and other drug and behavioral addictions. The bright side of addiction is recovery.